0: Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Everybody. Welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. And today we are talking about the daddest of all the dad movies, Ron Howard's Apollo 13. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University of Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian
1: Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania.
0: And in our first segment, Justification by Faith, we're going to discuss how Apollo 13 might help us think about life in the church and in the world.
1: In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to discuss how Apollo 13 might help us understand electionary passages for May 3rd. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of
0: us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. But well, before we begin, I'd like to introduce our guest for today, Eric Barreto, Associate Professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. Eric has been with us before, last seen on this show talking about Avengers Endgame, and Eric,
2: always a privilege to have you here, and great to have you back. Hey, thanks guys, I'm really glad to be back, and thank you for allowing me to go back to the 90s for a couple of hours. (laughs) So, speaking
0: of which, Ron Howard's Apollo 13 was a big 1995, big crowd-pleasing, true-to-history blockbuster based on the memoir of astronaut Jim Lovell published the previous year, in which Jim recounts the events of the Apollo 13 moon mission, in which an onboard explosion forces the astronauts and a whole army of NASA engineers back home to figure out how to bring them home safely. You got your Tom Hanks, your Gary Sinise, your Kevin Bacon, and your Ed Harris, everyone you need to totally overtake the summer of 1995. This movie has that sort of odd mix of nostalgia and excitement and real history that feels like catnip for dads. And I should know, I freely admit that I adore this movie. But as I sat revisiting this last week, I admit that it felt also trenchant to our moment. It feels like a movie about how we respond and adapt when everything blows up. And as I I sit here stuck in my house, trying to adapt to a pandemic and trying to help a church adapt to a pandemic and trying to steer myself and my congregation through what feels like an explosion, Apollo 13 felt entirely on point. But that's me, Eric. And I'm wondering from your perspective, what was it like to revisit this movie? And did it feel resident to you, to our
2: current life in theology and in the world? Yeah, it was really fun to revisit this movie. I watched it with my kids, who are 9 and 11. And at one point, Ed Harris pulls out an overhead projector and starts to use it, and it breaks. And my kids were like, what's that? And it was just (laughs) this beautiful moment of 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 jumping back in time. But I think one of the things that struck me about the movie is it's this 90s vision of the 70s. And there's this implication there about how we imagine the past, how we imagine where we come from. And to me, it's a really interesting contrast to say a movie like Hidden Figures, that again is a movie about a similar time in, uh, in history, but made in a very different time and thus has like this very different look to it, right? It's got different characters and different people represented. If you watch Apollo 13, you think that only white dudes are involved in this, and nobody else, right? So I think there's yeah. uh, it, there is something about the moment, and something about the way that space calls us to our imagination, calls us to these uh, to the height of human achievement, but also it seems like colonization and all these other <laughs> assumptions follow us into space, or especially in the way that we imagine space and the future and possibility. So there is something there about how we, I think, how we make sense of the past and the present, how we make sense of the past in the present, that I think feels particularly resonant right now And imagining how our kids are going to remember this moment, how we're going to remember them, this moment, how institutions are going to live through and out of this moment. So I think that's one big thing. The other piece, of course, is this massive effort to try to save a life um, that. You know, that's I think at some point um, Hank's character said something about how thousands of people were working behind the scenes to save them. And that there's something deeply human about that, this deep drive to preserve life. Um, And, yeah, that resonates now. There's thousands of people working the front lines, whether at hospitals or at the grocery store, just uh, sustain us. And there's something deeply human, deeply rallying about that. And I think that's one of the reasons the movie really still works.
0: Yeah, we were. I, I watched this with my son too, and we were about halfway through, and he turns over and looks at me and he says, uh, "You know, Dad, I think I think God would like this movie." It's like, "What do you mean?" And he goes, "Well, it's, all these people are, are trying to save these three guys. I think God would like that." It's like, you know what? I don't. I don't. I don't think you're wrong. I mean, there, there, there we go. There's something very elementally helpful and beautiful about getting a chance to witness that. Well. Adam, what about you? What what struck you in your revisit of Apollo thirteen?
1: Um, yeah, I hadn't seen this movie in a really long time, and I think, like Eric, it's the 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 look of the movie stands out, right? It mm-hmm. is, it is the it is very white in its its portrayal of things, and so initially, I I was sort of I was struck by the um, like the iconography of the astronaut first right like um and why we why we sort of fall in love with astronauts right and in some ways i think they're kind of apolitical right they're um and and you see that in this movie right like there's there's all of these people who are coming together to save a life right and there isn't ever at least with respect to bringing these three astronauts home a question of of some some economic question, right? Like mm. where, and I think we might get that in 2020, right? Where some politician is like, well, how much is it going to cost to bring them home or something like that? Right. Um, but in this sort of nineties versions of the seventies, like you, you don't get that, right? Because the, the astronaut is, it's, is this like sacrosanct hero and in, in part apolitical. but in the background, you, you hear all of these sort of rumblings of canceling the sort of, the space missions, the Apollo missions that are designed to go to the moon, and um, and there's so the fact that that you have these sort of like sterling heroes who can't do anything quite wrong is is kind of unique. I think in in if we were telling this story again, we would we would dirty them up a little bit mm. in mm-hmm. order to, in order to make them a little bit more relatable. But at the end of the day, I I think. Um, I was, I was charmed by the fact that there aren't any real villains in the movie, right? Like, it's not, it's not a, it's not a movie where you're going to pit humans against each other in some sort of battle of power. It is a a collaborative movie about how industriousness, imagination, creativity, and courage kind of gather together into some um, force that can solve a problem. And I think like you all, that was, um, that was inspiring. I mean, cause I, cause that's what I want to happen right now, right? Like I want industriousness, creativity, imagination, courage to like coalesce into some response, <clears throat> both big and small to the moment that we are, that, that we're living through. And I think that that's really important. But I, as I watched this, I was thinking about the sort of vision of leadership that begins to show up in this movie and how, um, Ed Harris is, is this very interesting leader on the one hand who's down on the ground trying to lead this sort of like team of people into solutions. And then there's Tom Hanks in the capsule who has to at various times assert some measure of leadership as the captain of the ship. Um, and how interesting it was to me how much patrolling morale became part of their job. Like, it's not just about them knowing what, ha- what to do next. It's about reading the emotional tenor of a place in a, in a moment and a time and trying to find the sort of the right response to that. And so I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the work, how often I have come into meetings in just exhausted, like truly exhausted and don't really have the energy to try and play that role But this movie was reminding me how important it is to try and to to, to meet the morale of the moment and of the day in positive ways so that you can, again, encourage people back into the types of collaboration that can meet a moment.
2: The pieces on leadership were super interesting to me. There was this moment, right, when they're not getting communication about the reentry, right? And it has to do because they don't know how they're going to do it quite yet. But the folks in the capsule, in their isolation, in their worry, in their sleeplessness, think they know we're not going to make it, and they're not telling us. So something about the the vacuum of leadership can sometimes let folks yeah. in isolation and uncertainty fill that in with our deepest fears, right? That they know we can't make it, so therefore they're not telling us. So the importance of, of truth-telling, but also I like this notion of patrolling morale, Um and like even like the when they MacGyver the the carbon filter right or the carbon dioxide filter that that is yes an achievement of ingenuity, but uh, Adam you're helping me think about this. It's also an achievement of, of of calling people to an impossible task, right. and giving them the emotional resources to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to me
0: that is the iconic scene of this movie. I mean, sure. I, I think I think there's a, a number of different places where we can grab on, but. But to me, especially for right now, that that image of the 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 engineers coming in and dumping all the crap on the table that is available to these astronauts in that spaceship and saying, "You have to solve this problem. Here's the stuff that you have, and you can't. We can't go <clears throat> fabricate something else. We can't three D print a solution. We can't uh, go in and weld something that." doesn't exist yet you can use these materials Uh, you can make do with what you have exact right on hand and and that to me feels like such a critical metaphor for how we how our churches are able to respond and adapt and change especially in kind of crisis moments like this that it's uh, we get to go into these places with the stuff that we have that it's the stuff that you have on hand. It's the people that you have. It's the resources that you have. It's the ideas that you have that you can throw them on the table and say, "Here's the challenge. Here's what we've got, and we can't. Um, we we don't have the capacity to um, invent out of the boundaries. All we can do is play with the pieces that are um, that are on the table, and that that felt incredibly reassuring and incredibly empowering and incredibly optimistic in, in a way mm-hmm. that um, made me want to to dig in and go back to that scene over and over. Um,
1: so Claude Levi Strauss, the um, sort of anthropologist sociologist makes this distinction in in one of his books about the the difference between an engineer and what he calls a brick allure, um, which is that the engineer sees a problem and Constructs something specific to that problem, right? That that uses the sort of engineering mind to um, to meet the specific issue and and um and that there's like a there's a brilliance in that, um, and that's what NASA is, right? I mean, I, I what I love is that so much of this movie is is them like practicing, like. There's a lot of practice in this movie, like just gaming out, right? And and because they're trying to pinpoint every specific need, but the they, you can't pinpoint every variable, right? You can't you can't test everything all the time. And so Levi Strauss says that the bricklayer needs a what he what he calls a devious imagination, which is the sort of the the phrase that I continue to harp on when I was watching that, which is it's not devious in the sense that like it's morally wrong. It's devious in the sense that you can see in something an opportunity for something else. Mm. Like and, and that's just like a such, like you said, Matt, that's such a critical part of our imagination, which is to take what we have in front of us and rearrange it to meet some new need. Because like have the time, the energy, or really the training to do the types of critical engineering feats that need to happen right now. Instead, we're doing these sort of like, we need to be devious folks who like look at something and say, oh, I can use this and this and this, and we're going to fabricate this thing. And yes, it's going to be like, it's going to be bound together in a way that's not going to last forever, but it'll last for today.
2: Yeah. I think part of the, I think for me that scene, and it, one recalls MacGyver, so that's exciting. But I think also <laughs> it just says, right, this is all we have, and it's enough. And I think that there's a really powerful theology there, and I think it comes up in our lectionary text. But I th- think alongside that, that note of hopefulness, right, there's enough. I think also alongside, it's important to name. In some communities, right, we put everything on the table. And what we have, we will make do with, and we will survive, right? Especially minoritized communities, marginalized Mm -hmm. communities. Um, There is this deep gift, this historical gift of making do with very little. And there's another step to take, right? They only have so much in their capsule because they're in space, right? There's only so much that can go up there. In other communities, there's only so much on the table because only so much has been granted, only so much has been made possible. So I think alongside this theology of, yes, there's enough. Alongside of that, we should also wonder, why is it that some tables are fuller than others, right? Why is it that some people have more resources than others? And I think in this moment that that unveiling of the inequities in which we find ourselves, right? that we it's always enough. But why is somebody's enough bigger than somebody else's? right? that that the moment, I think, is revealing those inequities in ways that I hope, on my best days, we can actually tackle, we can actually do something about in the wake of this pandemic.
1: Well, and especially, Eric, in the sense that making do required sharing, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. and, and right. we'll see this in the Acts 2 passage in the lectionary, it required sharing because you don't mm-hmm. actually have enough. You only have enough when you all share. But yeah. how do you share in a, in a during a pandemic, right? Like, right. Right. It, this is particularly insidious for those who have lived a sort of, independent life are they actually better prepared to sort of mm-hmm. figure out how to do this right now right like they're, they're better prepared to weather whatever the isolation requires but in those communities that have been forced to try and figure out how to pool resources in order to survive right. they're especially feeling this acutely because like that was how they made their way through
2: it yeah there's i think a, a rich irony that the communities right now that can most survive this moment are the ones we're going to ask to do the most, that we're going to take the most from, that we're going to give them the fewest resources. Um, and, you know, the very communities we need to learn from to know how to survive this moment are the ones that we're going to put the heaviest burdens on at the same time.
1: So I have another question for you, Eric. I mean, like, like I said earlier, my one of my favorite parts for the is is all of the tra- like the little training stuff that they do <laughs> at the very beginning of the movie, where they're trying to pilot the command module, and and you see that Gary Sinise is like he's a, he's a great pilot, and he he's working and he wants to go again, but you begin to realize him going again is actually working against them because Kevin Bacon is not getting time in this module. It's really well done. Um, you know, when we think about like how we improvise in this moment. Um, it's not full improvisation, right? Like you have to, you have to remember your training at right. some point. Like the, there, the training is, is there to help you um, make sense of whatever is going on in this and try and press you into some appropriate practices. Um, and it got me thinking about seminary, which is like, how do you, how do you train clergy for the next pandemic? Like what, what about our training with clergy needs to tra- needs to change, um, because you need to, you, I think we increasingly need to train people for terrible things that are going to happen. And, and I'm really interested in the way that I'm interested in two things. Number one, how this pandemic is going to show up in movies going forward, Right. because like it eventually will, will get its time as a story. Um, but also, like, how is it going to be studied? How are churches going to be studied, right? Like, the Philadelphia Historical, so- or the Presbyterian Historical Society called the church and asked for our Easter service, oh, wow. right? Like, they're archiving our, like, Zoom service. How do you train ministers who will ultimately be leaders in churches when things go wrong?
2: Yeah. I think it's a great question. I The movie part, I think, is interesting. I know Netflix, somebody on Netflix right now is writing a a teen rom about this pandemic. I, mean, I know it's happening, but, um, when it comes to seminary, I, I think this is the, 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 challenge before us and the question before us. And it's been the question for a while, right? Because we knew we were training folks for churches that were going to confront all kind of financial and social realities that were not going to be this kind of pandemic-y, but also going to be really transformative, really challenging. So one is I hope we don't train people for the the platforms of today, right? So if we had been trained back when we were in seminary uh, with the current technology, then we'd be totally ill-equipped to do any of this. So if we're training people how to do Zoom and how to do Facebook Live, then we're kind of missing it, right? So the question is, what's underneath that, right? The technology is going to change. We can't anticipate it. But what we can anticipate is that underneath these technologies are human and theological questions and our answers may shift and nuance but the questions are going to remain. What does it mean to be in community? How is God present among us? What is the, what does communion mean when we're not in the same literal space? Right? So I think for me is there's an old task, but an important task is to train people into the rich traditions, where people have wrestled with these questions in the midst of pandemics, in the midst of plagues, in the midst of warfare, in the midst of uh, of catastrophes, and where it felt like the world was falling apart and the future was uncertain. This isn't the first time that we've encountered something like this. So there are deep resources in the tradition. So, and we don't know what parts of those traditions are going to be really valuable. So I think we equip seminary students with... Um, with history and biblical studies, all all these traditional, uh, ways of understanding, we equip them, equip us all with this knowledge. But I think there's one more step to take and that's to, to pay attention to the margins of these spaces too. again, going back to our earlier conversation among those communities that have had to thrive and survive with less for us to pay more attention to their testimony, to their witness which means some kind of retrieval activity, because so often those voices aren't preserved in the textbooks, aren't mm-hmm. preserved in yeah. the guild. So we're going to have to do some excavation and some archive work and and just find ways to nurture our knowledge and our sensibility and our understanding of what happens with communities that, that don't have as much as others. So those are a couple pieces for me. And I think too, in the end, as a teacher of the New Testament, for me, it's The Bible isn't going to solve this pandemic, right? I do think that the kind of imagination the Bible stares in us can be this indispensable resource in the work that we're doing in this moment, and the preaching that we're doing, and and how we theologize uh, community and communion. Uh, So for me, it's one, how do we not just have preachers and teachers and Sunday school teachers who rely on, say, a commentary to tell them what to think about the Scripture, but who know how to read a commentary and how to hear the stories of their community and draw those all together to find biblical readings that are compelling and imaginative and transformative for people. And that's harder to teach, but I think that's a challenge that we're called to in the moment.
1: Thanks, Eric. That's that's really helpful. And it's, I think, really important as we consider this to to make sure that that archival work is happening but also a sort of reminder to our theological institutions that it has happened, that, that there are these archives, they're just little, and they can be like incredibly valuable sources of, of help and, um, and resource. I, I actually think about like, there, there are a lot of places when I was thinking about how to do communion virtually, there are a lot of churches that have lived in fear and persecution who have had to figure out how to do communion mm-hmm. services um, apart from each other. And what does that what does that look like, and what can we learn from them? Um, so I, it's it's a vital question as we go forward, especially as we think about how how ministry and ministers will be formed. Matt, as you continue to think
0: about Apollo thirteen, what other themes are standing out to you? The, the character that we have not wrestled with at all that I, that I kind of want to just wrestle with for a second before we move forward is Gary Sinise's character, the Ken Mattingly, the astronaut who um, is you know exposed to measles a couple of days before the scheduled launch he's supposed to be on the ship uh and then because now we know things about uh about communicable diseases he the, the doctors tell him we don't want to risk you getting sick on board and so they ground him and, and bill paxton gets sick yeah yeah, yeah. um the of course, you know Eric is totally right. Like this movie is overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly male, and to say that it rep- that it has anything in it that represents a marginalized community, I think is is, is optimistic. And and yet, if there is a, anything in this film that feels like a marginalized character, it's it's Gary Sinise's character because of the way that the um, NASA kind of pushes him to the side; that he's he he's no longer a value because he may get sick. And he's kind of he's effectively self isolating in his house, which more mostly just looks like I think drinking and watching the, watching television, um, not that different than half of our isolations. <laughs> uh, and and then the explosion happens, and NASA has to figure out a very specific problem, which is they have limited power on the ship, and they need to power up things in order to get into reentry, and they have kind of. The, the working model of the ship sitting on, on, in, in, on, on the floor in Houston. And Sinise's job becomes to go into that model for days on end and try to figure out the power-up sequence that will allow them to get everything up and running without going over whatever the power max is that they have on, on the real one. And there's something kind of fascinating about this sequence to me that if he had been on the ship... And not grounded, it's entirely possible, and the logic of the film, it's entirely possible that nobody would have figured out that power up sequence. Because he as as you've already pointed out, is the is the one who has been so obsessive about trying to fig- about trying to know that ship as well as anyone and being the best pilot for that ship. If if he is actually on the ship, he can't do any of that. He can only do it because. The logic of the plot has shunted him to the ground. When I pastored in Virginia, I, I was on the board of the local Meals on Wheels agency. And it was all volunteer run. Uh, we, and we, we were kind of uh, not a huge number of clients, but we were delivering food to a pretty large geographic spread. But it all ran through a central coordinator. who was a woman who was severely disabled and herself a Meals on Wheels client. And she'd been a client for years and years and years um, because homebound, couldn't get out, uh, needed that help, but was incredibly gifted at administration and organization and logistics. And it was on her computer and her phone all the time. She was incredibly fluent in all of that. And so one day before I got there, the organization made the brilliant decision that this client who could not leave her house was the perfect back-end operations person for a Meals on Wheels operation. And so this person who could not have found professional value in the world in the kind of normal ways because of the limitations that she had became like the center spoke of an operation that was feeding people for hundreds of miles in both directions. That may be overstating it a bit, but a pretty large spread. And there's something about Gary Sinise's character that kind of reminds me of that, that he he can't be on the front lines for dumb reasons, and he's marginalized because of that. And yet, he's exactly where he needs to be uh, so that he can be the center spoke around which all of this salvation happens. I love that.
1: I mean, I just, it's it goes to show you too, I mean, like, how, how each of these people in that in the shuttle and in the the at NASA like have their place right it's very Pauline it's like everybody's got their gift like and when when they're about to launch you get to hear all of the various different departments and that's it, it's kind of stirring to see the sort of the operation and the team that has gone into the creation of of this this moment.
2: It strikes me too that uh, uh, the Chinese character also limits himself. Right, he won't. He he wants to be under the same conditions. Right, both the the, the temperature and the lack of sleep. That the, he chooses um, further limitations on himself in order to understand better. How the crewmates are doing it out there in the capsule. So there is something there about even if we have the ability to grasp all these different privileges, that sometimes giving those up, emptying ourselves of those privileges, to use some biblical language, can be a way to accompany um, folks in very important ways. Yeah, beautiful.
0: All right, Adam and Eric, we're going to move on. But before we do, we are grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing. They have been stepping up and have been providing some really smart resources for the church in this time of physical isolation, and I commend those articles to you. If you are listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century Sunday Morning Matinee, listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit ChristianCentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, gentlemen, let's talk about preaching. The text for this upcoming Lectionary Easter 4, year A, May 3rd. We've got, of course, the Acts 2 community who shares everything. We've got Jesus mixing metaphors about shepherds and gates in John 10. And First Peter on the suffering of Christ on our behalf. Eric, I'm going to kick it to you as you look at these lectionary passages. What inspires you or connects for you in light of uh, the reviewing
2: of Apollo 13? Um, I'm always going to go to Acts, so this is just <laughs> catnip for me, right? So... <laughs> Uh, This is the third of three weeks in the lectionary where Acts has started with uh, the Pentecost speech that Peter gives, and then gives different glimpses into the community, glimpses into the, the shape of the community's belief, the shape of the community's baptism, and today, the shape of the community's belonging. And now they're teaching and eating and praying together. There's this picture of a community that's holding all things in common, and they're doing so with glad and generous hearts. Uh, so a lot to go with. The, w- two things. One is, um, I'm struck by the community being characterized by awe. But mm. I think the wonder is awe at what? Well, it says that they're in awe, uh, people are in awe about the wonders and the signs that this uh, early community of Jesus followers are performing. Mm. And I think we imagine I, I tend to imagine that that's healings and maybe you know the the fire, the tongues that were like fire that came down from heaven. But what if that signs and wonders are not some sort of wizardry so much as belonging and community? What if we start imagining belonging and community as a wonder and a sign? And the connection here to Apollo 13 is that I think we might, this is the kind of movie where we might get distracted by the technology and by the feats and by the big rockets and all that, but at the heart of it, the wonder and the sign is the kind of commitment, the, the community that's built in that capsule, the community that's built back in Houston, and the ways that people tended to one another. The, the technology wasn't the sign and the wonder. Um, I remember early in the movie, they, they don't show the video clip, uh, the broadcast from the capsule, because people don't care anymore, because it's going to space isn't that interesting. What is interesting, apparently, um, is people rallying together. So what if we imagine belonging as a, as a sign and a wonder that we might display in our own communities? And second thing is to think about um, the ways this community sharing of goods. I, I get concerned that we might teach this text as, as, a, as a rule that we have to follow. And when we realize that we can't follow that rule for lots of really good reasons and lots of bad reasons too, that selling all that we have and giving it to the church seems... Uh, maybe beyond us, again, for lots of really good reasons and lots of problematic reasons too, that we don't just stop and feel guilty that we can't build this kind of community. The the function of this story is not to make us feel bad that this isn't the kind of community that we're a part of, but again, to stir our imaginations, to wonder what might that look like for us? What might that look like for us? And I think the second time that this community is mentioned is uh, this kind of community sharing is mentioned is in chapter four, And there, I think it becomes clear that the reason the community is able to share with one another is not because they're such awesome Christians. It's not because they're so ridiculously generous, but because they believe in the power of the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Because if God can bring back the dead, there's nothing that God can't do. So what if this is not about making us feel guilty about not being able to sell our possessions, but about redirecting our attention to a God that brings life from death. And if we truly believe that, then what extraordinary things might happen in our communities? What signs and wonders might we be able uh, to bear witness to? Eric, I'm, I'm really
0: curious about this and I would love your take on it. I was reading through some of the kind of contemporaneous newspaper accounts about the Apollo 13 mission. And it's quite clear, and it's a little bit underplayed in the film, um, I think, to the, to its credit. But it's quite clear that for those four days, this is what Earth did. Or at least what a, a, a prevailing sense of kind of Western white culture was doing was watching these astronauts and trying to get them home. Uh, the, the, the The Pope stops and has prayers for them. Like, everyone is... You know, united around this moment of trying to urge these these folks home safely and it feels like one of those moments of you know very threadbare kind of cultural unity that we talk about but at least in my experience we we note them at times of trauma and trial so we talk about the post 9-11 unity which I was there wasn't that united but (laughs) <laughs> we, we, and, we, and we talk about it now in light of COVID. And obviously it's always problematic and there's always questions of who gets left in and who gets left out of those moments of unity. But in my experience, they we, we seem to talk about them and note them as kind of, as almost post-traumatic responses to these really difficult circumstances. But here in Acts, we see a similar kind of unified community and you note that it is coming out of this what seems to me like a deeply promising optimistic vision of resurrection and the holy spirit mm-hmm. is there mm-hmm. a way of trying to think about that community as as in its own kind of trauma as well or am i d- deeply no, overreading that's...
2: that text no i think that's super helpful i think about Uh, For instance, the road to Emmaus narrative, right? So you've got these two disciples who can't recognize Jesus in front of them, can't, you know, he smells the same, he looks the same, his voice sounds the same, but they can't recognize him. And I've been wondering if that's because of the trauma they experience of seeing their friend die in this cruel way, and their own fear for their own lives as they're fleeing Jerusalem, perhaps. And I wonder if that's reflected in that the 12, you know, the, the newly reconstituted 12 and Mary and the other early followers... And even in Peter's sermon, when he draws in the complicity of the crowds in, the, in their participation in the execution of Jesus, um, is that a rallying around, around trauma? Heard, there's one more piece, too, I think. This is super interesting to me. Um, again, that second time when the community is noted for having this unity and there's not uh-huh. a needy person among them, it's at the end of chapter 4, and then chapter 5 starts with the word but— but Ananias and Sapphira, right? Right. So that, that unity only lasts so long. As soon as a community starts coming together, it also starts fraying apart. So I think we can find, I don't know if it's comfort or I don't know, but like to know it's community is really deeply frail and the kind of unity that trauma can create for us is itself deeply frail. So how do we nurture that unity? How do we maintain it and know that life is also going to eventually look different than it does now. We won't be in the middle of a pandemic. And what do we want to hold on to in that moment? And yeah, I, I think I think there's space for exactly that kind of reflection. And I, th- for me, one of the important things to do about this is not create this community so idyllically, so perfect, so wonderfully that we forget that there aren't there's conflicts from the beginning of the book of Acts, right? right? It starts with Judas. It starts with replacing him. It starts with that trauma of a friend betraying us. So it, instead of making this like this perfect little community, it's to see it from the very first as deeply fractured and frail because that's what we all are.
0: Yeah, thanks.
1: Right, and that and that that Christian diaspora that it happens due to persecution, right? I mean, so the martyring of Stephen like everybody Takes off. I mean, the apostles stay in Jerusalem, but this is no longer a Jerusalem movement at that point, right? Like, and so I, I think that's also part of this, which is how do, you, how do you hold things together as everything atomizes out? And I, I find when I read Acts, Luke is, has some very astute things to think about and say about that, um, especially as it reflects. The, the stirring of the Holy Spirit that continues to grow this thing, even as it atomizes, right? I mean, this is mm-hmm. kind of a crazy thing, which is in chapter two, you have this, this group that, that seems like as healthy as a community can seem, right? Like yeah. they're sharing with each other, right? And if and they are growing, right? Like Luke loves to count and he's yes. giving these like 2,000, 3,000, these, and he, he, that, but all of those numbers start to tail out off after a while, after that leaves Jerusalem, because it, and you get these little stories about how difference is being included into whatever this movement is in ways that were unexpected, whether it's the Sumerian, uh, Samaritans and, and Philip up um, with Simon, the magician, or whether it's the Ethiopian eunuch, or whether it's ultimately the Gentiles who are being op- mm-hmm. uh, invited it's, you know, Luke is giving this, this sort of like, strange account of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is pressing people into behavior that seems like, utterly amazing. And I, I think about that, too. with like, looking at the, the, the collaboration that happens in this Apollo mission is really fascinating to me, because yeah. they are moving so fast. And they're, they're, um, they're improvising on the fly, but they have to trust each other, right? Because Um, someone's gonna come up with an idea and they don't have time to double check, triple check, quadruple check, right? And, you know, Ed Harris's character isn't gonna be able to go like, okay, go go make sure that uh, that the carbon dioxide meter is gonna work, right? It's like, here's our best shot. And so you have to sort of trust each other and trust that everyone, maybe if they're not of the same ability, they are of the same heart and mind That they care about the same things ultimately, and and that's been that's also a fascinating part of this, which is like the apostles get so much description about doing these signs and wonders, but almost immediately, like you start seeing people who are not apostles start to do signs and wonders too, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Like Philip is one of those Hellenized Jews who gets to show up, but then suddenly he's doing everything that the apostles are doing, right? And that's like um because he seems to possess the right set of postures to do the work and it's it's less about your authority to do the work it's whether or not you have the do you have the heart and do you have the 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 desire to be a part of it
2: yeah i think the other piece for me is the way that the spirit is kind of moving in the background of the book of acts um there's thing you know say the Ethiopian eunuch story that nobody seems to realize happening and nobody's going to have a council about spirit kind of working around the margins of that community or entirely in the background of the narrative so paul gets to to rome and there are believers there paul hasn't been there yet how did how luke does not narrate how people got there how how did they hear so even though there's this narrative there's also these stories in the background and again i think it's interesting to say pair apollo 13 with a story like Hidden figures because there is another story to tell
0: Mm
2: -hmm. uh, another story to tell from a different perspective sure absolutely Matt, is there anything
1: else in the lectionary that you look at and think that's valuable for a preacher who's also watching Apollo 13?
0: So the lectionary, because, because it gives us the John 10 passage and the Jesus and the sheep and the shepherd, we also get the Psalm 23 pairing. Uh, and I, I am not a huge preacher of Psalms, uh, and, and I'm not sure I've ever actually preached on the 23rd Psalm, which may be something heretical to admit. Um, but I, I find, I find that text really interesting because not because of what I can mine out of it exegetically, but because of the way that it becomes a sort of, a sort of liturgical talisman, um, the ways that people internalize it and use it, it would not be totally out of character for this, for Apollo 13 to have a scene where one of those folks in the, in, in the spaceship is reciting a little bit of, The 23rd Psalm on their way back into Earth's atmosphere, right? Like that, it would feel entirely consistent with the tone of the film and also kind of our historical use and understanding of that, of that piece of scripture. And the priest present at the helm. Right. Absolutely. Uh, And it reminds me of my own theology of duct tape that comes a little bit from this film and from duct tape's history in NASA use uh duct tape was on the Apollo 13 spacecraft and because it just happened to be there and is one it shows up in that scene where they dump out everything on the table and say here's all the materials you have fix the carbon dioxide filter and they use that uh to great acclaim it's the thing that binds their conversion together and after the Apollo 13 mission it became standard practice for every NASA mission to include several rolls of duct tape in the closet somewhere, because just in case you needed it. And I find this kind of fascinating. Like, if you're on a rocket or on a space shuttle somewhere, and you look over there and you see a couple of piles of duct tape, like, that's kind of be kind of a good news, bad news situation, right? (laughs) Like, I don't want to be on a space shuttle that is going to need duct tape. But and so what is the emotional effect of having that duct tape with you on the rocket? It's like it doesn't project a thousand percent confidence (laughs) in the integrity of the structure that you're in. But it does project a degree of resolve, right? Like it, it projects the people that have set up this mission with me and for me are committed to me getting home. And they're doing whatever they possibly can to help get me there. And and I feel like I I have talked about this and preached about this as a way that duct tape helps me think about faith and the small pieces of my faith that show up in things like the talisman of the 23rd Psalm, the little Mm -hmm. pieces that Mm -hmm. um, in some ways help expose the cracks in creation in some ways I would like to not be in a world where um, reciting the 23rd Psalm would make me feel better um, the, the, the world should be better than that and, and not need me um, to assuage myself um, I, I should not be plummeting through the atmosphere in a ship that may or may not be able to survive it uh, and, and anytime you or find yourself in that in that crisis reciting the 23rd Psalm, it's probably not a great day. On the other hand, it does feel like it shows some kind of resolve to me that it's, we are going to get through this and God is going to be with us and we are going to make it home and God is determined to get us home. And I, I, um, that is a meaningful thing for me to remember and it's my theology of duct tape. So I share it with you. I love it. I
1: love it. I think that's a good place for us to end the conversation. Thanks, Matt. This is also the place where we thank Eric for coming on and sharing in this conversation and for watching this movie with us. Eric, thanks for being here. You're always welcome. Come back anytime.
2: Thank you all. Really, This was really fun. Thanks for taking me back in the 90s. That was really fun. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be glad to do it anytime.
1: Yeah, I don't know about you. My nostalgia for like
0: middle 90s right now is crazy. It's so high. I do need to point out, I couldn't figure out how to work this in, if you like this movie but don't want to go back to the 90s, you can watch its remake, which is called The Martian, and came out in 2015, (laughs) and is the same movie. I watched yeah. it a week later. It yeah. is the
2: same movie. That was also delightful. It's incredibly but, yeah, good. It's, it's, it's totally it's watchable. The it's the
0: same movie. We are still <laughs> rescuing like, well, a white that guy that stranded in space. It's still in tape. It. It's duct tape. Duct tape and poop. It's still <laughs> duct tape and poop. It's the same thing. Uh, I, I would like them to make one at some point in which we are not rescuing a white man. I feel like that would be a challenge we could live into. But it's <laughs> if you like the themes without the mid '90s nostalgia, yeah. I've, got, I've got a, I've got an option yeah, for you.
2: That's a good one. Donald Glover my, might be the best part of that movie, though. My so other '90s nostalgia, because I'm looking at your notes, is Last Dance is just, oh, so, oh yeah, oh so, oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if it's actually that good, but right now, oh, it's feels That's so what good. Talk about, yeah, it's
0: it it tastes delicious, doesn't it? <laughs> well, no, 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 let's just, hey, you know, you know, like, no, 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 let's let's on the, fly, on the fly, on the fly, let's have Eric hang out, Adam, let's right. let's do your postlude so Eric can critique it because I haven't watched this thing at all, so you, you, Eric can um, can take you down.
1: All right, this is our last segment. It's called Post Ludes, and it's a chance to get another preacher thought from each of us on something that we're watching or following. Here's mine. So ESPN um, expedited it's, um, its Jordan documentary. And there's probably, I don't know, maybe three or four athletes who could sustain a 10-part uh, uh, documentary, um, Jordan being one of them. And, I mean, the story of how it came together is pretty interesting in the sense that, like, they had all of this archival footage from the 1997 season which would have or, or the uh 1998 season um and which would have been the uh which was jordan's last season with the bulls which is his last championship and um and they sat on it the nba film sat on it for a long time because jordan wouldn't give them the um wouldn't wouldn't give them the rights to actually like use any of it. And finally, 20 years hence, 23 years hence, they finally have sort of cut this thing together. And in, in for for basketball weirdos, there was always talk of this Jordan documentary that never got made. And it was like a two hour doc made from this footage. And it's like special people had the DVD. And if you knew somebody, you could maybe see it. Um, but and this has been cut into this 10 part doc. Um, if you've read David Halberstam's um, Playing for keeps, it, it sort of does the same thing. But Halberstam didn't get any access. Jordan wouldn't even interview with him. And so, which was crazy because Halberstam, one of million Pulitzers, and is um, widely considered one of our best non-fiction writers of the 20th century. Anyway, I started watching this thing. It, it is incredible it scratches a total itch for me because my 90s nostalgia is running so deep right now I want to drive the car that I first drove in when I started to learn how to drive that's all I want to drive I want to like I want an old beat-up Ford Ranger to drive around right now Um, and I listen to ungodly amounts of Weezer currently because that's all I listened to at that time Um, and so the Blue Album is like on constant repeat in my house right now and what could complete this except for my own deep obsession with Michael Jordan, whose posters lined all of my room. Um, And so, uh, so of course I started watching this, knowing most of the story by heart and very familiar with, but it it provides new access. I love it. I just eat it up. It's so good. It tastes so delicious. And yet I don't know if it's any good (laughs) because of the, the context in which I'm watching it because I'm so, so sports starved right now because i like sports i like watching it. it is an important outlet for a lot of my emotions and i don't get any of it and so i'm watching this stuff even though i know all the outcomes to it but i'm watching it and like loving it um and i keep thinking about while i watch this i keep thinking about our own churches and how much i feel like i'm being graded on a curve right now which which is like people are like wow like that zoom worship service was really great and i was like it was yeah it was good i guess it was all right but but everyone expects it to be horrible they expects it to be terrible and so um and and so i'm sort of coming to terms with the fact that a lot of things that the context is requiring us to grade everything on a curve right now that everything that the things that i think are really delicious i don't know i really can't be a neutral arbiter right now and while there's always bias that comes into the ways in which we critically assess something this this feels of a new degree to me with, with respect to like whether I like something or not like something. Like I know people love Tiger King. I can't watch Tiger King right now. It makes me too anxious. Maybe when everything settles down, I'll watch it and love it. But I have no idea. So this is, this is life being graded on a curve. Eric, what's your initial response to Last Dance?
2: So yes to all that because it is one of my joys of sunday evening is to turn that on and to watch some the clips and to see plays that i didn't remember i remembered right watching the stuff and i'm like oh i totally remember watching this um i have the same questions about whether or not it's good i know i love it it's like candy it's like dessert it's just um enjoyable to watch but i think about it alongside say oj made in america another Ten piece, ten part, massive study, uh, and that I think that was probably of a whole different caliber, right? Because it's it's asking deeper questions. Oh yeah, and it's yes. and it's asking questions that go beyond nostalgia to like how did we get here? Um, not to say that Last Dance doesn't have it, its perp- its use, right? I think it's it's it, the nostalgia can be really helpful. It can. Um, I think there's something about seeing someone who's so great at the thing they do and the way that they can bring out greatness in others and also the way that that greatness is really fragile, really frail, really problematic is really gorgeous to watch. But I love this idea about being graded on a curve in this moment. Um, and when it comes to a lot of schools, including Princeton Seminary, we defaulted to pass-fail uh, during this time, which I thought was exactly the right thing to do because we we don't know what other people are going through. And we have to grade each other on a curve just as an act of generosity and grace. Uh, and also because we as teachers don't know entirely what our full capacities are in this moment. Uh, so uh, maybe we can give the documentary a little break and just enjoy it. And oh, the Rodman stuff was just so, so vivid. He was so <laughs> controversial back then. And now if he showed up, we'd be like, eh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just another guy on Twitter.
1: Guys, I've got I've got Rodman stories. I've got Jordan stories. <laughs> I I uh, I once picked up when I worked on an ambulance, um once picked up uh Dennis Rodman. I was like we've got what? yeah. Oh, so I can't man. say more than that because they're like, you know, protections. Pippo. Yeah. <laughs> but but he he lived in Newport when I was going there when I was growing up there. He was all over the place, man. So if you look at him in the in the we're so in those, such a weird place right now. I'm looking at <laughs> in a documentary. Um, he's wearing a hat of a bar in my hometown. That is where all like that opens at like seven in the morning. Like <laughs> it's, it's one of those bars. It's one of those old beach bars where good, good beach alcoholics hang out. Um, it's yeah. He's, oh. he's like, he's, ingrained in all of this the jordan stuff is is crazy to me yeah
2: and pippin's voice is just mm, so good all, all the good things
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right matt we're done what about you y'all
0: you, you, you talk about your uh sunday night comfort television viewing and i'll tell you about mine which is that last night i spent three glorious hours uh watching take me to the world which was the um Broadway celebration of the 90th birthday of Stephen Sondheim that was organized by Raul Esparza and featured like this just massive lineup of Broadway megastars past and present who were singing Sondheim pieces pre-recorded from their quarantined locations. it was spectacular because there's so much talent and sometimes stuff is so rich and textured and human and people just picked what they wanted to sing and sang it. And there were some pieces that I knew very well and some things I had never heard before. There were folks that just absolutely killed it. Uh, and and then it had some very charming moments like Mandy Patinkin who was the George and Sunday in the Park with George when it opened on Broadway uh, in a park singing a little bit of Sunday in the Park with George. And in, in that period, in that place of isolation and quarantine gives all of this so much more richness and resonance. It was absolutely spellbinding and exactly like the, the deep comfort blanket that I needed. Uh, also in the speaking of grading each other on a curve, the thing was started disastrously. And I just... I don't know if the YouTube <laughs> recording will archive this because I suspect that YouTube will eventually only archive the official broadcast that actually began well, though it did not begin until about 9 Eastern and was supposed to begin at 8 Eastern. From 8 to 8.30 or so, Twitter and YouTube comments were like, where's the show guys come on where's the show and various people who had submitted for the show Lin-Manuel Miranda Preman, and among them were tweeting like it's coming don't worry we're getting there this is just normal tech today stuff then it starts finally on one YouTube channel and it starts with a pre-recorded bit and then it goes to Raul Esparza live from his basement or whatever uh But Raul Esparza, who has organized the entire thing, Broadway legend, can sing the pants off of anyone, um, has forgotten to unmute himself. and And there's no way for Raul Esparza to find out that he has forgotten to unmute himself because there's nobody in the room with him. And he's not looking at his phone. He has no input. So for a solid five minutes or so, Raul Esparza is just monologuing into the camera with all the... He's got so much performance in his face. Sounds it's it's captivating to watch. And you can't hear a damn thing the man is saying. And you're waiting for someone to like go over and knock on the door of his house. And be like, dude, there are 100,000 people watching you. And no one can hear anything. At which point, at some point, he finally does realize it. You see this look of total panic come over his face. He rushes around and like dislodges the camera. And five seconds later, the stream is over and then we go back to waiting for the show to start again so amazing. we spend another half hour on twitter and youtube comments like what's happening now they keep because he's ended the stream they have to start different ones and so now the links are changing and we're like which stream is it going to be which stream is it going to be it finally kicks up an hour after it was supposed to and they've just removed Raul Esparza from the show now they're just going to not do any live bits and they're just going to play and sequence all of the pre-recorded pieces. And it's <laughs> fabulous. Once it happens, it's fabulous. And what I noted on Twitter and in those comments was the deep well of generosity and excitement that was built into this. Like, for- nobody cared because we were all so in love with the idea of having this thing at this time on this Sunday night. And we all love these people and we all know that they love each other. And the, the, the we were grading on such a curve. Like, it, it did not matter in the slightest. And that's I think amazing. about that for our Sunday Zoom worship. Like, we are so, like, oh my God, is he, the slide is wrong. The hymn text is not, the, we're in the wrong verse of the hymn text. Please let it back. And it's like, it does not. I, I don't think that's what anyone's grading on right now. Mm-hmm. We're just excited to have a chance to see the people that we love and to be in these communities of relationships that are based on all the work that has gone into them before and all the reservoir of the spirit that's there. Uh, and it was it was marvelous to behold. So that's my Amen. word of grace to all the Zoom and Facebook Live worship leaders out there. You got it, you're good.
1: <laughs> all right, well, let's wrap up the show. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page to discuss how we got it all wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter at the show page at Sunday Morning Matinee. Special thanks, of course, to our friends, to Christian Century and to the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band Space Barf. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Adam.